Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Danger Room, the X-Men Comics Commentary Podcast. My name is Adam. And my name is Jeremy. And we are here to discuss X-Men, well, the Uncanny X-Men, actually, uh, number 147, the July 1981 issue, which was on sale April 14th of 1981, and this one's called Rogue Storm. in this issue either that or storm i'm not i'm not sure hmm. well i'm gonna guess that storm is definitely in this issue because she is full force on the cover and this comic book is selling sex like nobody's business you think so look at this look at storm she's she's wearing some very uh skillfully placed robes yeah I scarves mean, i mean this this is uh this is comics man i mean Look where we are today. It's, it hasn't changed. <laughs> no, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that, you know, in, what'd you say, 1981, 1982? 1980, 1981. If I'm, if I'm going into the comic book uh, store, I guess there's not too many comic book stores at this point, but if I'm at the drugstore or the gas station looking through comic books and all I've got is maybe a dollar to spend on comic books, I definitely buy this one. <laughs> <laughs> because, of, because Dr. Doom is kneeling on the front cover? Pretty much. Oh, man, it's got Dr. Doom. Want to know the coolest part of this cover? What's that? Nightcrawler is using the UPC to stand on. Ah, I didn't even notice that. He is. Angel's flying in from the background. Colossus is shocked. Wolverine is also kneeling down next to Dr. Doom. It looks like Dr. Doom and Wolverine are playing a, a, a game of ramshackles. Or whatever they call that, rock, scissor, paper. yeah. That's probably it. Dr. Doom is about to select rock, and uh, Wolverine's about to select paper. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it says on the cover, it says, We did it before! Dare we do it again? Rogue Storm. What do you think that refers to? Um, Is that a Phoenix reference, or is that a has Storm ever flipped out before? I don't know. Didn't she flip out once before when she was uh, claustrophobic or something? Maybe. I don't remember. But... Did they label it Rogue Storm? I don't know. Uh, the word rogue is certainly used before because we've certainly made the joke that, oh, rogue's in this issue. So Yeah, that's, that's true. That's definitely true. So they've used the words rogue either in the title of a comic book or on the cover of a comic book, but uh, I don't think that's what they're referring to. Spoilers. It's a Phoenix reference. Oh, you think so? <laughs> oh, I know so. Okay. Because <laughs> it, it says it in the story, which is why I said spoilers. I haven't read the issues. So oh, okay. <laughs> good. It's really not that good. <laughs> this is one of the less memorable uh, runs of, as far as this Doctor Doom arcade storyline is. It's not one of those you like. You really remember. That is very true. I mean, they have a number of things working against them, right? They're coming off the Dark Phoenix run. They're coming off of like a really good duo between John Byrne and Chris Claremont. And now it's kind of like Chris Claremont and... Uh, 
old what's-his-face Dave Cockrum trying to find their niche, maybe. Um, but honestly, like, well, we'll go through it, but this issue was, I thought, actually pretty good, all things considered. You just said it was bad. Make up your mind. Well, I, I do. I like to go back and forth. You just, like, disagree. <laughs> well, I thought this issue was great. Adam, I don't agree with that statement that you just made. <laughs> Whatever it was. I wasn't really listening. So anyways, let's open this thing up. It is written by Chris Claremont. It is drawn by Dave Cockrum and inked by Joseph Rubenstein. Colored by Glynis. Um, Glynis. That's just what it says. It's colored Glynis. <laughs> Letterer is Ors. And uh, Luis Jones is the editor. Jim Shooter's the editor-in-chief. What What the hell? Like, Glynis Ween and Tom Orzachowski, they're just like, eh. You ran out of room. They're Glynis and Oars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's the 80s, so they're like, yeah, call me the Oars from now on. <laughs> Fine, I'm just going to be Glynis. The Oars has spoken. Although we would have to keep up with the, the credits here, because maybe this is the beginning of the end for the the Glynis-Ween, uh, Len-Ween marriage. Maybe she's going to become Glynis Oliver soon. Uh, I it could be. I don't, I don't know. Do they... Would we... Uh, all right, I'm looking ahead to the next issue. <laughs> Spoilers. It's Glennis Ween in the next issue. <laughs> actually, I don't even know if they get divorced. I just know that she goes from Oliver to Ween. I don't actually know if she goes from Ween to Oliver. Oh, so we don't know that she goes... <laughs> you know, no, we do know that she goes back to Oliver because in classic X-Men oh, she's Oliver. Oh, good call, good call. Okay, good call. So... Uh, when we last left uh, the issue or the comic book, Arcade was laughing at Dr. Doom because Nightcrawler had disappeared. Uh, actually, that was two issues ago. Uh, but in this issue, we figure out where he went. He apparently teleported himself way, 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 way above Dr. Doom's mansion. I mean, castle, which is kind of a mansion. He figured, based on the fact that Angel had been to the castle before that he was probably, worst-case scenario, in the dungeon, and that if he just teleported straight up, he might not get killed. And it worked. Yeah, it's not a terrible plan. A couple of things. I mean, not, I mean, it, it seems like if, if I can see it, I can teleport it. That makes sense. But it seems to be like a whole other thing entirely to be like, I'm going to teleport two miles above the castle. Well, he's going to teleport two miles up. Right, but how does how can without like a frame point of reference, how is he able to teleport a dis a measure a unit of distance? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean, but I think you're getting once again too scientific for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fine. But here's the other thing: he spends a great deal of time talking about like, oh, it was a it was a gamble, it was a risk. I could have teleported into something, and if I would have teleported into something, I would have died or gotten severely hurt, and that all makes sense. That's good. Um, but he did teleport into the middle of a rainstorm, so doesn't it make sense that he would materialize around a bunch of raindrops? And wouldn't that cause some damage? Oh yeah, it probably would. <laughs> or is that also being too scientific? Mm-hmm. That yeah, there would be raindrops like inside his body right now, probably causing him at least to get sick. Yeah, I mean he might not die, but certainly if there's water in the wrong places in your body, I mean that could certainly cause some damage. Good point. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, imagine if he had like teleported into the middle of a lightning strike. 
that would have been probably equally bad. And he does comment on the weather about how how horrible the weather is. Um, but we also forget that he's about two miles up in the air, and how in the world uh, is he going to get himself safely to the ground? Because if he, as he's falling, teleports, he will go out of that teleport falling at the same speed. So even if he teleports a couple of inches off the ground, he'll still be going, you know, too fast and smush as soon as he comes out of his teleport. So what does he do, Adam? He does what he did a couple of issues ago, and he teleports sideways. Nope. Nope. He doesn't. What he does is he is very careful to find an updraft and use that to bleed off some of his velocity. And uh, I don't know. He, he is able to, uh, within feet of the ocean ground, or maybe the rocky ground, I can't tell which. I think it's a rocky ground. He's able to catch an updraft, go up, and then when he gets to the apex of his upward momentum, he then teleports about 10 feet above the lake that's next to him and plunges into the lake. Fundabar, I found one, referring to the updraft. Right. Which is a good plan. I mean, it's exactly what I had had said he should do a few issues ago. So maybe maybe subconsciously I was just referring to what he was going to do in this issue. Probably. <laughs> Anyhow, he's uh, he's underwater, and he's got to swim back to the surface, and the water's very cold. He swims to the surface... Peppa, piece of cake. Must keep my teeth clenched tight. If they start chattering, my fangs could cut my lips and tongue to ribbons. Oh, I forgot about that. That's something to really think about. Mm-hmm. He's got fangs, teeth, and and that's that's interesting. You have to be careful with you when you have a mouthful of fangs. Mm-hmm. They don't really talk about that too much. He has a one-page uh, flashback of the events of the prior issue. Mm-hmm. Not the prior issue, but two issues ago. That's when he mentions Angel's visit here last summer from Marvel 2-in-1, number 68. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, inside the castle, Arcade is mocking Doctor Doom. Face it, Vic, you lost an X-Man. Don't that bother you none? Is that the voice you're going to go with this week? It's not much different than the voice from last week, is it? Remember that clip you played? Vaguely. Of Rumpelstiltskin? <laughs> yeah. He 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 was more like this, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Face it, Vic, you lost an X. Now he just seems like a demon, though. No, I like the... You gotta, you gotta merge it with the southern accent. Face it, Vic, you lost an X, man. Don't they bother you none? None? Well, that's good. Right. We've spent far too much time on this. <laughs> It's it's always a work in progress. Little man, you have no understanding of Doom. <laughs> Dr. Doom goes on to talk about how he designed these death traps to test them so that he could fully understand them. Their abilities, their intelligence, their courage. If the X-Men are truly as formidable as you have incessantly boasted, they will escape. If not, Nightcrawler is out. I wish him to be taken alive and relatively unhar- unhar- unharmed. I guess if not, they'll be dead. Something like that. Doesn't really finish that sentence. <laughs> uh, a random thug appears on, like, a picture frame here. <laughs> Orders, sir. Yeah, he, he's got his busy screen. <laughs> or his LCD screen. Uh, Dr. Doom says that uh, Arcade is beneath contempt. He is without, or you are... You are intellect without purpose, powers without responsibility. Your only goal is your own self-gratification. What? 
the window sw- uh, slams open, and uh, he commands his robot Aurora to close the window, which she does, and Doom thinks to himself, what is causing this, this storm? Could it be Could it be storm? No, no, she is helpless. In a prison for which there is no escape, and yet, who else could it be? Thor. It's Thor. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, at NORAD, the... People in blue uniforms are saying, this storm is crazy. We got to do something. Yeah, this panel goes nowhere. <laughs> it's totally useless. I don't even think they come back to these guys, do they? Nope. They never come back to these guys. This was like a total face space filler. I can't. That's just weird. I almost, I almost said face spiller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the rest of the page, so that, that's half the page. The next page, maybe this whole page is just like, what are we going to do? Dave, just draw something. I'll fill in some word balloons. Well, we get some we get some goons talking about their lives, and you know, it's kind of like I, I kind of I, I kind of like this. I I could I could see like a, a comic about these two guys. <laughs> What's the matter, Phil? You ain't never seen a hurricane before. I've seen my share of everything, Tobe. Is that Toby or Tobe? I don't know. I would go with Tobe because Toby should be T O B Y, but I don't know. Or, or T O B E Y. Yeah, that'd be like a girl named Toby. What is Toby doing, or Tobe doing? He's warming his hands by the fire, I guess. Well, Phil drinks a nice warm cup of cocoa. No, Toby is drinking the coffee because Toby oh, yeah. is the right. one talking You're to right. Phil, who is warming his hands at the fire. So apparently Dr. Doom can't spring for any heat in his castle, which makes sense. He's a deposed dictator of Latveria, so his assets have probably been frozen. He probably doesn't have a whole lot of money. Well, he just, he just got the castle back from Toadland. No, oh, sure. So they're in the midst of transferring the utilities from Mortimer Toynbee to Doctor Doom. This is one of the the next panel. Like he says a whole bunch of stuff, and then he makes this move. But it's kind of weird because we see the move that he makes. Huh? What's that, Phil? But then before he says that, he says a lot of stuff that doesn't go with right all this. So it should be split into two panels. The first panel would just be him, just like. Well, I gotta admit, I'd rather be in here than outside with that nightcrawler dude, blah de blah de blah And then the second panel, huh? What was that, Phil? Or they could have fit these word balloons into the previous panel. Sure, either way. I mean, there's plenty of space down at the bottom there. So at the window, it's a very wet, very evil-looking nightcrawler. Nightcrawler howls, his voice topping the storm and bears his teeth in a demonic smile. Interesting, they spell it demonic, D-A-E-M-O-N. Hmm. I think that's still pronounced demonic. Oh, I think so too. I just, uh, it's, it's interesting. Interesting way they spell it. These mercenaries are among the best in the world. Doom requires no less. So the X-Man's sudden appearance from the horrific visage freezes them only for a second. Yet by the time they recover, their wits and open fire, Nightcrawler's somewhere else. He, he, he appears behind them as though he's going to slam their heads together, but instead he does some sort of stupid karate move. <laughs> yeah, it's a very G.I. Joe-looking attack. <laughs> well, didn't knock the mind, Heron. Didn't we learn that Heron meant Mr. last issue? Yeah, like my, my, my Mr., my sir, my man. You got to remember, though, that like... My men, that's what it is, yeah. That the okay. language is so. not like a literal trans- translation. Yeah. You know? So he's saying, good night, my men. Yeah. Or, yeah, something like that. I would say, would, don't you think it would be like more like a, good night, my men, my man, my man? No, that doesn't make any sense. Good night, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> good night, jerkwads. <laughs> 
What's the German equivalent for jerkwad? I don't know. Just took my heron. <laughs> Nightcrawler thinks about how easy that was, and it was able to generate some adrenaline, so he's going to take advantage of that before it wears off, uh, and he's going to go save his friends. Ready or not, my friends, here I come. Meanwhile, elsewhere, Colossus is still hanging onto that rock that was being sucked into like a, I don't know, a wind or water vortex. And so he's trying to figure out, he's he's understands now that this is a puzzle, or he figures it's a puzzle anyways. So he's developed a plan, and that plan is to knock off a chunk of rock about the same size as him to see what happens. And what happens is a bunch of lasers shoot that rock. So then he makes another rock, a little bit smaller than the fleshy version of Peter Rasputin, and throws that into the water, but the guns don't shoot. So he reasons that if he turns into his fleshy form and jumps into the water, he won't get shot at. So that's what he does. And it works. Yeah. However, some chunks of rock fall off the mountain nearby them, and they get blasted at. And it says, Blasters fire scorching his side as they vaporize a rock only meters from one outstretched arm. There's a is a example of telling not showing. Mm-hmm. He cries out in shock and pain and loses half his air. Mm-hmm. The guns, I've nearly reached them. By the white wolf, they all seem to be pointed at me. And they are? And through. The guns are not tracking me. We also did, this is important to note, and we'll get it again, but earlier on he says that he doesn't have to breathe as Colossus. Oh, I do not breathe in my armored form, so I will not drown. But these huge energy guns will shoot me. So the whole point here is that he dives into into the water. He, the rocks hit him. He loses half of his air. Uh, the guns are at the very bottom of this pool of water, and he's got to swim by them, but he's running out of oxygen. Uh, and this is you'll hear this time and time again in a Claremont story. Almost no air left. Lungs burning. But I cannot change yet. <laughs> I am still too close. I mean, that whole lungs burning thing, you'll just hear that over and over and over again. Finally, when it seems as though his lungs would burst, no more time. I must take the risk or drown. And then he fooms the wall. And by foom, he doesn't mean friends of mighty Marvel. (laughs) Or friends of old Marvel. He punches through the wall, and water goes spilling out of the wall, which may be important for later. But meanwhile... What's up with the angel? Angel's sitting on his angel perch, just like he was last issue or two issues ago, studying the lasers. He's determined that the uh, the lasers are not random as he initially thought they were, but they're shooting in a very specific pattern, and that if he flies, he just has to uh, do it at top speed, absolutely perfectly, or he'll die. Yeah. So uh, so he does that. And manages to sweep by all the lasers. Once he escapes, the cell blows up behind him. He recognizes the hall. He's in the catacombs beneath Doom's castle. And suddenly he gets flooded by a lot of water. We get a... And he drowns. He's dead. And that ends. Exit Angel. Rest in peace. All that for nothing. Yeah. Kind of a letdown. Meanwhile, Wolverine is in his little zero-gravity crazy room, uh, and he's kind of curled up in a fetal position, and he's having some memories of days gone by. This is the weirdest placement of a flashback ever. It's like, what does this have to do with anything? It's like Chris Claremont was like, I just really want to tell some backstory about Wolverine. I'll shove it here. It won't have any relevance to the story. 
it kind of ties in, though, to the last panel of this page. Because the, the whole point here is that something happened. He doesn't know what it was, but it caused him to go crazy, and he's about to kill uh, or severely wound James and Heather Hudson. They're both in this panel. Wolverine's in his dress blues. Yeah, we've never seen Wolverine in his dress blues either. It's kind of bizarre. It is. So this is this is certainly before uh, Professor X came to find him, I guess, and probably before his encounter with the Hulk. Anyways, we don't know. He doesn't remember what set him off the day he almost killed James and Heather Hudson, his best friends, the only family he'd ever known. It could have been a word, a gesture, a smell. His senses are so acute that he responds to subliminal clues most people don't even notice. Mm-hmm. This does set some things up for the rest of the story, albeit loosely. But Mac here, he's like, Hey, don't simply react. Don't blindly follow your instincts, eh? And emotions. Think, Logan. Control them. Control yourself, eh? You're not an animal, my friend. You're a man. We love you, eh? <laughs> We're your family, eh? Uh, you're right. There, Mac, an animal would do, would, wouldn't do some of the things I've done. Mac, Heather, I'm sorry. And he says uh, that he's no good, and he that Heather and Mac have been good to him, and he's crazy, and he's a government-certified psycho-killing machine. He ought to be locked away. And that's when we come out of the flashback, and Wolverine is, is kind of reiterating, like, um... There's really no, like, resolution to this flashback. It's like... No, there's not. I remember the day that I flipped out on... James and Heather and what happened? I don't remember what happened. It's irrelevant to the story right now. Well, he's talking here. He's like, and for a while after I joined the X-Men, I got him pretty much completely under control. But lately, that control has been slipping. I'm becoming as much a danger to the X-Men as, uh, as to the creeps we fight. So there's two things, I think, going on. They're setting up that he reacts instinctively to his instincts that's kind of we can't it's a double use of the word instincts <laughs> anyways you know what i mean and second of all i think maybe chris claremont's trying to start building an origin story for wolverine and then i think this also just kind of like also starts the tides for like maybe a more darker rampaging wolverine berserker wolverine we'll see if any of this stuff pays off in future issues because we don't get too much more of it here but we do spend a lot of time with him in the crazy room trying to figure out how to get out of it. And he figures since every time he hits a wall, it ricochets him into another wall, uh, what he's going to do is just every time he hits a wall, he just wildly slashes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, he gets shallow cuts, others are deep, some doing no real damage, others considerable until finally he short-circuits the anti-gravity field in the room, and uh, I feel wasted, but I can still think. I'm still in control. Score one for the psycho. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good, because earlier he says that he can feel the berserker rage building inside of him, that if he cuts loose, he'll revert to his animal side of nature, and uh, he may never regain his humanity. He's been down that route before, and he'd rather die. So this whole thing, I guess, is him, like, kind of giving in to the Berserker rage, but also trying to rein it back so that he can remain a human. Well, never's a pretty strong word. I mean, come on. Well, he, he might be able to come back from it. Well, we've discussed this before. Wolverine only talks in absolutes. 
whether or not he's accurate is irrelevant because he'll always. I'm always going to be a danger. I'm never going to do this. You know that's not true. So, anyways, Wolverine does cut himself out of the floor, and he ends up in a corridor that is filled with water. He smells nearby Angel and Colossus, but he also recognizes that there's a storm brewing outside the castle, and he realizes that the storm doesn't feel natural, and, and if Aurora created something this big and powerful, she must be fighting for her life, and he's got no time to help the others. He's got to go help Aurora now. And so he does. He bursts through Dr. Doom's door. Who dares Wolverine? On your toes, creeps. The cavalry just arrived. He jumps in, and he sees Storm next to Dr. Doom, and he's wondering why Storm's not doing anything. Dr. Doom says, deal with this little diminutive upstart, and Wolverine just destroys her face. Yep. Not a chance, sweetheart. Which, I gotta be honest, I, I, I like this because normally in a comic book, this would be all drawn on, and you'd be like, there's something weird about Roro. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And this is just like, now, <laughs> moving on. Now, I, I agree with you, but for the follow-up, because if I'm, okay, so Dr. Doom reacts, he says, fascinating, and I thought I was ruthless. If I'm Wolverine, I don't explain to Dr. Doom that, no, I actually knew it was a robot, and uh, and I didn't, and that's the only reason that I that I totally destroyed it. I just let Dr. Doom think that I am that ruthless. Yeah. Because why does Dr. Doom need to know? You are, I mean, obviously, from a story, storytelling perspective, Chris Claremont is telling us, the audience, he's not really telling Dr. Doom. Yeah, instead, it's, it's like, A forever, Doom, your robot looked perfect, but I never go just by appearances. Let me explain. I know a person <laughs> by their stance, their smell, and also their feet. I have adamantium claws. <laughs> My bones are laced with adamantium. I knew the minute I laid eyes on that storm that she was a fake. And now that I have said all this to you, you are going to blast me in the face. Arr! <laughs> You're right. He should have been like, I don't let nobody get in my way. And then just left it at that. Yep. The next panel um, I like a lot. It's Wolverine after he gets blasted. His chest and face are all covered in shadows. He's kind of crouched. Not quite Batman style, but it's a good, it's a good panel. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's very Spider-Man style, actually. Yes. That's better description. It's very Spider-Man-y. Uh, and with all that shadowing, it's like, a, it's like an early Todd McFarlane Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Because the first time you see it, you're like, this is awesome. And the 30th time you see it, you'd be like, he's lazy. <laughs> His anchor's <laughs> doing all the work. Anyways, so he's he's threatening, easier, hard, it makes no difference, Doom, I'll keep coming until I get you. But before he can, Nightcrawler teleports in. He sees Nightcrawler materializing directly behind uh, Dr. Doom, and he's worried that his brimstone stench will give him away, but it doesn't matter because, I don't even know why he bothers thinking that, because it doesn't give him away at all. Nope. And Nightcrawler uh, jumps on Doctor Doom with a curtain. Huge tapestry. We get a solid John Byrne-inspired butt shot of uh, Nightcrawler. Oh, yeah. Love me some John Byrne butt. Uh, so <laughs> Nightcrawler uh, covers up Doctor Doom in a curtain, which is actually, this is a, this is 
I thought trademarked by Marvel Girl way back when. <laughs> but whatever. Nightcrawler was inspired by Marvel Girl. I read the files. Beautiful crawler, you got him. Yeah, but Doctor Doom, he's he's like, I don't, but I am far from helpless. And he throws a punch through the curtain and punch or hits Wolverine in the jaw. Too bad you're hitting a man with adamantium bones. Now it's my turn. He punches Doctor Doom. No. <laughs> I offer a deal, Doom. Your life for storms. Unless you think you can kill me before I poke these claws through your faceplate. Then again, I'm one of the good guys. I could be bluffing. You do not bluff, Wolverine. In that way, we are much alike. Decide, then. So Dr. Doom pulls out a little ball and says, She's over there. Just, I guess, throw this ball at her and she'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Throw the ball, pal. If Doom's lying, he dies. Doom is not lying. There is a blinding flash of light, and um, we get, Mein Lieber, Froom, I hope we did the right thing. Mein Lieber? What does that mean? I don't think we've done that one before. Uh, Google translates my Lieber, Froom, as my boyfriend, Lieber. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're both from Europe. We used to date. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, I got it. It's mine. They they just spelled it wrong. My dear friend. Mein Lieber, friend. My dear friend. There was, it's actually L-I-E-B-E-R. Okay. Anyways, uh, in a panel that looks almost exactly like the cover, we see Storm become free of the organic chrome that she was, and she says, Free! Lords of the Earth and Air, I am free! And so Wolverine and Nightcrawler are looking upon... Uh, Storm, whose hair is crackling, and there's red stuff all around, and she's got lightning bolts in her hands. And we get a little bit of dialogue about how in Kenya she was a goddess, but not really. She was a mutant, but everybody believes she was a goddess, and she was claustrophobic. Don't forget that. It's important. Because when she was uh, a chrome statue, it was the ultimate form of claustrophobia. In a desperate, instinctive bid for freedom, her subconscious created within her an insatiable demand for power. That near-infinite power now unleashed has evolved beyond her all-comprehension. The two Edsmen are stunned by her transfiguration. Doom is not. That was why he'd allowed them to free Storm to provide the momentary diversion he needed to make his escape. And he blasts Wolverine in the face, but not Nightcrawler. Where is Nightcrawler? Yeah, he's just—he's still stunned. Sure. Storm starts shooting at Doctor Doom. No place on Earth can hide you from my wrath. No power entity can protect you. She's in. She's mad. I deflected that lightning bolt about the, the effort and drained my armor's energy reserves. Another with such a dagger may well destroy me. <laughs> I can't tell where he's from when you do it that way, Adam. I don't know where he's from. He's from Latveria, a fictional country where they talk, they have random accents. It's kind of like goofy Italian man. <laughs> I want a pizza. Wolverine, not Roro, not her, too, Kurt, we've got to stop her. Because uh, they're pretty pretty upset that Storm's all out of control here. We uh, Colossus shows up on the scene and sees that uh, by the White Wolf, Storm is about to attack not just Doctor Doom, but also Nightcrawler and Wolverine. 
And so he removes them from the game by just taking the floor out from underneath their feet. And now it's just him facing off with Aurora. He figures they may, they may drop, but they'll be okay. Because mm. Wolverine's got an adamantium-laced skeleton, and Doom's got armor, and Nightcrawler's got phenomenal agility. Yes. Forget that he can teleport. Uh, Storm tells Colossus that, I am power! Magneto's classic line. Da, Magneto, what have you done with Storm? And then she says, I have no wish to harm you, Peter Nikolaevich. Which, again, what happened to Peter Rasputin? Nikolaevich is like his middle name. Okay, so it's Peter Nikolaevich Rasputin. Yeah, there was another name that he was called a couple of issues ago that I don't know where that came from. Magneto calls him Peter Alexandrovich. Right, and then we were trying to figure out, like, is that something that Russians do when they get married? Because he marries Kitty Pride, even though nothing in Kitty Pride's name is anywhere near Alexandria. Hmm. So, Any Russians out there? Want to help us out? Yes. Where did that come from? And as far as I know, uh, that name, unless maybe Russians have like a couple of different middle names, like maybe his full name is Pyotr Alexandrovich Niklovich Rasputin. Kind of like Fred Amos Duncan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Storm, who doesn't actually wish to hurt Colossus, does because Colossus's uh, organic steel body actually attracts the lightning. And he also comments that it actually hurts him. And he doesn't know if he can withstand this onslaught for much longer. But he's got to try to endure before it is too late. And he gets blasted by Storm, who's like, be gone. And he goes flying backward. Uh, Angel shows up on the scene and he's like, oh, man, all I got are these wings. What good am I going to (laughs) be? He does say, there's a gale blowing outside like you wouldn't believe. I couldn't survive those winds. Uh, Nothing can. They're tearing the castle apart and the land around it. This is my part of the comic book. <laughs> we face a rogue storm here as well, Todorich. I didn't mention this, but earlier in the uh, issue, he says, by the white wolf. And I think this is the first time he says that. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think the first time he says, by the white wolf, is actually two issues from now. Oh, I'm sure it'll be every issue in which he says it. Dr. Doom says... Uh, by the White Wolf. <laughs> he says, by the White Wolf, which I believe is the first time it's ever said in a comic book. By Dr. Doom. He says, if I could reach my laboratory, dot, 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 an angel who has nothing else to do says, haven't you done enough, Doom? I'll lay any odds you're responsible for this. Uh, uh, uh. Well, of course he's responsible for this. Accessibly, my when the crisis is a past angel. Assuming we have lived so long, my intellect, my powers, my devices are the only things that can save us. Angel's like, I, sorry, didn't catch any of that. Could you, could you say that again? I'm a doctor too. <laughs> I do not repeat myself. Storm chimes in, in actually a really well-drawn panel here. But she says, uh, your intellect, your powers, your devices are finite, doomed. They have limit. I have none. For all your posturing, you are still no more than a man. I am a goddess! No, you are Roro. Remember that, Windrider. Find yourself once more. Find your humanity, your soul. Hold on to that with all your heart and all your strength, or we are lost. You'll face... (laughs) I'm losing it. (laughs) You'll face the Gorgon within us, Roro, as Phoenix did. 
You must triumph as she did not. Phoenix, the name, sparks images, laughing red-haired woman who was Aurora's dearest friend. And these scattershot uh, memories spark an awareness of who Aurora is and what she has become. She screams in rage and grief for her dear friend for herself. Her dead friend. Yes. Oh, her dead friend. And then rides a spear of raw energy through the heart of the storm to the edge of space. If I were the Avenger Thor, I could disperse this storm with a thought, but I'm not. (laughs) Uh, So she uses all of her powers, and she has to basically gently... Massage the storm back into shape with, you know, some nice, nice limbering uh, textural touches and, and, and I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> nice touches. So she massages the storm, uh, coaxes it back uh, out of existence. The effort nearly kills her and then she starts falling to her death and Angel finally has a point <laughs> for being here and saves her by flying up and she's falling at terminal velocity. A sudden stop will break every bone in her body. I have to match speeds then gradually break her descent. I did it. I'm Angel. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Earlier Storm thinks to herself, though, that she now understands how Jean Grey felt as Phoenix, those memories of her beloved friend that gave her the strength she needed to face her inner demons. The power is hers. They cry, why give it up? She fights and endures, and finally she triumphs to give up the power, which is weird. So, like, does Storm always have this power in her? I don't think this ever happens again. Uh, this is like her version of Berserker Rage. I guess so. So Angel flies Storm back to the rest of the X-Men. Colossus, in a very comical panel, is staring at the X-Men, but as uh, Arcade tries to walk away, he says, Going somewhere, comrade Arcade? Hey, be a pal, Colossus. Let me go. I think not. And unless you behave yourself, I will leave you to Wolverine's tender mercies. Sounds good to me, bub. And kisses. (laughs) I am pleased that you are alive and well, Aurora. I'll bet. <laughs> this is where it kind of goes off the rails for me. Like, this whole thing has happened. Like, Storm was pushed over the edge. And one could say, like, while she wasn't, like, physically molested, for lack of a better word. I mean, certainly mentally she was. Um, and here she's like, eh, it's all good. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's lots more words than that, but. She asks for uh, Arcade back, and Dr. Doom says, Very well, I'll do it if if he apologizes. And Arcade refuses to apologize. No way, Bimbo! And then she says, Wolverine, and and then he he gets all scared and says, I'm sorry. I'll never never insult or bother you again, Vic. You got my word. What it is worth. And then that's when Dr. Doom apologizes to Storm, and Storm's just like, eh, okay. It's all good. Don't worry about it. We leave as a, we part neither as friends or enemies. Our slate is clean. The next move is yours for good, even though you've probably left me emotionally scarred. But don't <laughs> worry. I'm I'm a strong big girl. I can take care of it. Well, maybe maybe in a way she feels like Dr. Doom helped her conquer something, even though he didn't mean to. I really, really wish that in 1982... And moving forward, they would have found a different way to insult the women characters than by the use of the word bimbo. <laughs> I do not like that word. 
<laughs> what do you have? I mean, I, I I don't I don't like it either. But what what what? Why do you take particular offense to bimbo? I don't know because like it it it's it's sexually divisive, right? I mean, a dude isn't a bimbo. Like, what name can you call a guy that you can't call a that you don't typically call? Uh, a woman or vice i mean vice versa you would never call a man a bimbo or a witch you'd call it you'd call a man a dick yeah but in a comic book oh uh bozo (laughs) well they don't though right i mean when you typically refer to when the bad guys refer to a good good guy in a negative way it's usually like jerk or you know there's not too many words that you can use because of the comics code and all that sort of stuff but jerk could easily go for i mean that's gender neutral whereas Bimbo is very, very gender specific, and it's like it—it's not even ever applicable because of what the actual root of what bimbo means. Well, they also—I mean, I think only villains use it typically, right? That is correct. But still, it's just—I don't know. I wish they could have come up with something different, or just—I don't know. Maybe I'm being too. No way, lady. Yeah, but even that. I tell you what, Jeremy, we're reading this. This is this is our podcast. From now on, whenever we see words that we don't like, we'll just replace them. No, no, with no. Words that we do like. I'm gonna call it out every time it happens because it happens a lot. I mean, Chris Claremont is like married to that word. No, but think about it, because like if we if we start replacing words, we can start replacing panels, <laughs> and we can start replacing like issues, and then we can just make up the whole comic. We can just stop buying all of these Marvel masterworks and omnibuses and just make up our own story, and then Angel truly will die when he's supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, this this issue is not actually over. Um, <laughs> so they part that way, but then we get a sunrise 1,500 miles south. And if you remember, they were also experiencing the effects of the weather. I think last issue of the issue before. Cyclops, or Scott now has his blindfold on his head. He wakes up in the arms of Lee, who he mistakes as Gene. Yeah, morning, sleepyhead. Morning yourself, Gene. Gene? Who's Gene? Mm. Huh? Lee? I'm sorry, I thought you were someone else. Someone named Gene. <laughs> Obviously. Want to talk about it? Nah. <laughs> well, which is weird. This also helped form uh, my um, expectations as to what being with a girl would be like. And it's <laughs> woefully inaccurate. Like, a hot young girl doesn't throw herself at you. And then be like, you want to talk about it after you call that girl a different girl's name? And then you're like, not particularly. This is something I have to work out on my own. And that's when the girl, of course, thinks to herself, ooh, he's deep. Yeah. And and look, I, I respect the way Wolf, or I mean Cyclops is handling this because it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to talk about this. Uh, and he is being kind of a stand-up guy because he's not taking advantage of this um, situation. But I just don't think that she would react the way she's reacting. I think she'd be like, oh, geez, I, I'm going to be over here now. <laughs> uh, business, let's just be like whatever. Oh, she just finds it more mysterious. Yeah. Well, anyways. As the ladies do in real life. <laughs> the good news is that this leads to a lot of scantily clad panels next issue, which I'm looking forward to. Ladies love waffly men. <laughs> yes, they do. Well, that's true. He's... he's uh. He's a challenge now because he's not like, oh, Lee, come on, baby. He's like, nope, there's somebody else. 
who's not here. I've got a story, and I'm not going to tell it to you. I'm a mystery. You've got to work it out. That's right. And as soon as you do work it out, you're going to drop me like a bad habit, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> as soon as you realize how, how much baggage I have and what a terrible, horrible, uh, <laughs> self-involved loser I am, you probably dump me like a bag of... I really have nothing to offer except for a lot of mopey stories. Some self-pity and anguish about my eyes. My deadly, deadly eyes. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, a big city has appeared overnight in the water, uh, and Lee can see it, but Wolverine... I mean, Jesus, I keep saying him. Uh, Cyclops <laughs> cannot see it. Wolverine can't see it either, to be fair. That's true. Once more, Scott curses the blindfold, which keeps his eyes sealed shut, and his deadly optic blasts in check. He lost his ruby quartz glasses, you'll remember, designed to control the awesome power of his mutant beams in the surf. As a consequence, for the first time in his life, he is helpless. Lee tells him what it is. It is a city, Scott, unlike anything I've ever seen, on an island roughly a mile offshore, an island that wasn't there yesterday. But what does it look like? It's just a city. I mean... How much work and descriptive can I get? It's a city. Have you ever seen anything like it? No. Okay. Sound like anything I've ever seen. I'm... On an island, roughly a mile offshore. I don't get and it. I wasn't there yesterday. I'm still not... Oh, curse these deadly eyes. <laughs> what color is it? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that is X-Men number 147. Next issue, Cry Mutant. Does is that like a command for mutants to start crying, or is that like? Or maybe it's cry mutant, cry for the mutants. So before we go too much further, should we just cover this next story? This, uh, curiously enough, this uh, issue of Bizarre Adventures number twenty-seven did come out this same month. So this Phoenix story that we are about to go over um, was published at the uh, same. Same, at least has the same publication date. Uh, this is Bizarre Adventures. Is that what it is? Bizarre Adventures? Bizarre Adventures number 27, which, if you recall, we read the Nightcrawler story from already. And uh, we're going to do the Phoenix story, which is titled Phoenix. Interestingly enough, or not, depending on how you look at it, uh, this is actually published in the Uncanny X-Men Marvel Masterworks Volume 5, whereas the story we just went through is in Volume 6. So hmm. it's out of order in my Masterworks, even though it was published at the same time as 147. So I don't know if they mean that this is... Because the way it would fall is it would fall right after the Wendigo story. But I think this is just backup material that they were doing, so... Whatever. In the omnibus, they, they it's in the extras material. Oh, okay. We're out of out of chronology. So, well, this story is actually pretty important. So, I don't know why I don't know why they wouldn't try to shove it into canon somewhere. Although the internet puts it in some sort of order, don't they? Yeah, the internet puts it. Um, let's see, where does the internet put it? Because uh, if anybody knows, it's those guys on the internet, a bunch of anal retentive people they are <laughs> i think this is actually where the internet puts it it could um, be yeah okay I, I think so do you I'm have not willing to do any more work okay do you have any um credits on this because i don't know who writes or draws this 
Um, let me see. I do. Uh, the script is by Chris Claremont. The art is by John Busima and Claus Johnson. Okay. And uh, that's that's all the information they they give us. That's all we need to know. There's no colors because it's in black and white. Oh, that's true. And I'm sure the letter is probably ors. Yeah, it's probably ors. <laughs> so this story opens up with Sarah Gray in a cemetery, which is near a. Uh, college the bells of saint stephen's chapel toll the noonday angelus as sarah gray enters the cemetery this is the oldest part of the college some graves dating back to the civil war others to the revolution today though none of those venerable stones have any meaning for her Hmm. she's come to visit the newest grave that of her youngest sister jean does she have another sister Uh, i don't think so not not that i'm aware of so shouldn't it be her younger sister Maybe Chris Claremont's just leaving it open. <laughs> it's been a year since Jean died. It still hurts. Sarah comes to pay her respects. She puts the some flowers at her grave. Uh, she thinks a lot of things. Well, actually, she says a lot of things to herself. But basically, it boils down to she misses her. And she's worried that her sons uh, could become mutants. And that her uh, sister's power killed her. So it could be possible that her kids powers if they become mutants could kill them and uh interestingly enough we have hard dates on gene gene's death is 1980 yep i believe we saw in the grave previously on the cover of a, of a previous issue but it's interesting that's a fact so it would occur to me that sarah now has a flashback to two years earlier is that how you read this issue yes okay so things get confusing it- in a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 kind of relevant to like she's just you know she's thinking back to a time and we'll learn more about this memory a, a strange fact about this memory towards the end. Yep. But uh, two years earlier, she's on the beach. Uh, Jean's wearing a bikini. Uh, well, at the beachfront rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jean's wearing a bikini and Sarah is wearing a uh, one piece. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about being a mutant and what's it like being a being the phoenix and all that kind of crap. Uh, Jean reassures her sister that she doesn't mind scrand those that she loves. It's a house rule. Um, but the rest of the plans of their day, they're going to go sailing and then they're going to go meet Paul, who's Sarah's wife and Scott, who Jean's dating, of course, for dinner at the cafe. They are Vitrix. You'll love it. The food is superb. Speaking of superb, uh, says a, uh, local tool. D bag. If you ask me. Yeah, that's what they could say. They could say tool. Speaking of superb, you lovely ladies certainly fit that bill. You appear unattached. My friend and I offered the perfect remedy. Us. Actually, my sister and I are very attached. A mere technicality. We have a yacht filled with goodies. And you wish to add us to your collection, no doubt. And she thinks to herself, his words are charming, but his thoughts are something else again. Why must people like this fantasize in such graphic detail? He's so unimaginative, too. And he won't take no for an answer. And then I don't quite understand what happens she, she telekinetically shoves him but she it also looks like she's physically shoving him and then she says out loud oops oh golly i slipped yeah it doesn't really make any sense so to me or to if or, or, or i i guess i met what i'm imagining is if i'm witnessing this scene it looked like gene just pushed this guy into the water yeah 
or the way I, I mean, you could certainly read that into it. The way I read into it was that she raises her hand to give him like a slight gesture, like we're not interested. And it's at that point that he reacts and slips is what she's trying to go for, for an onlooker. But I don't know. It's a little weird. The man surfaces almost immediately draped in seaweed to the laughter and mocking applause of the crowd. So he's probably been picking people up, trying to pick people up all afternoon. Yeah, he must be a jerk if, if the crowd is, like, mocking and applauding it. It's... Otherwise, the crowd is a bunch of jerks. Yeah. <laughs> so they board the sailboat, and Sarah's like, you were really hard on him. You shouldn't have done that. He got what he deserved. She goes on to talk about, like, uh, one problem with being a telepath is that I habitually react to what people think rather than what they say. I saw what he had in mind for us and responded accordingly. So this is serious. Yeah, I'm starting to think that this guy's, like, ulterior motive here is pretty dark. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sure it either involved, like, a little bit of rape or a little bit of cutting in pieces or both. So we're we're, yeah. deal, we're dealing with dark topics here in the Marvel Universe. Well, then why would she just, like, push... I don't know. It can't be that dark or she would have had him done something done to him. Well, we don't know what happens elsewhere on his body. He, you think his... <laughs> <laughs> it's just his head that surfaces. <laughs> exactly. His other head is telekinetically inside out. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and so then she kind of mimes her powers and gives her sister a slight dose of it, and she trips backwards but does not fall in the water. Try that stun again, dear little sister, and I'll give you a bit of a chop. <laughs> Zing! Uh, and Jean says, Poo, marriage has turned you into an old fuddy-duddy. Absolutely no sense of humor. And she starts bringing out some of the lunch sandwiches using telekinesis, and Sarah gets a little a little bit freaked out, and she starts uh, talking about her children. She she wonders if they're going to be mutants, and Jean says, "I don't know. Would it be so terrible if they were mutants?" And Sarah says, "They'd be different, don't you?" And Jean says, "Don't you really mean they'd be freaks, freaks like me?" And then Jean destroys her sister with a blast <laughs> the end it's a very dark story no uh sarah's unable to look at gene in the eyes but uh, neither women notice a periscope coming up out of the water which is observing their sailboat periscope belongs to a submarine uh, with an unearthly design i'm going to ask you a question a little later on as to why these people have a submarine but We'll get there when we get there. <laughs> Anyways, uh, a fog comes up out of nowhere, and it gets really cold. Gene tries to telekinetically clear a path in the fog, but it's too thick. It is uh, so cold, in fact, that even Gene can't feel it, although normally, as Phoenix, she shouldn't be able to feel the cold. Her telekinetic talent automatically adjusts her body metabolic levels, making her impervious to temperature shifts, but they're not having much of an effect right now. She tells Sarah to call the Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard's not responding because uh, there's too much static on the radio. And then it turns out that the smoke is, in fact, gas, and they are both knocked unconscious. Jean's last word before she falls unconscious in a rather suggestive pose is, Scott! Which is weird. Is she that infatuated and in love with him that 
even though he's nowhere near the situation, she's like, Scott. Maybe maybe she was like saying, great Scott. <laughs> that could be. So she falls into the water. Yep. She think well, she's, she doesn't think anything. But if she could, she, she wouldn't be too frightened because she died once before and was reborn as Phoenix. Uh, but she's unconscious. And this is where it gets a little weird to me because as she's falling in the water or, or, or sinking in the water, uh, remember we're in Sarah's flashback, but within Sarah's flashback, Phoenix has a flashback now, which is a little weird. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Actually, though, I, I know where this all fits together. It's It seems a little weird that we're in Jean's flashback and Sarah's flashback, but I think I can explain it in a little bit. So hold on to that thought. I just thought of it. Jean is 10 years old, a brighter-than-average tomboy living in a converted farmhouse on Annandale Road near Bard College, where her father was a professor of history. Sarah was away at Girl Scout camp, and Jean was playing with her very best pal, Annie Richardson. Oh, finally. I didn't know when we'd get this story. Her father (laughs) takes off from work, or for work, rather, uh, and... Her mom comes out and says, you and Annie, be careful playing for cars. There's a blind curve. They can't see anyone in the road, especially if they're driving fast. So instead of her mom saying, go play Frisbee out in the backyard, she just lets them keep playing Frisbee out in the front yard. So really, this is Mrs. Gray's fault. And exactly what we expect happens, happens. Uh, Gene throws the frisbee a little too far. Annie runs to go get for it. Uh, Gene says, Annie, wait, check for cars first. And um, Annie never saw the car. The driver never saw her. Apparently the driver never stopped. No. Funk. I don't have to worry about that. I didn't hit anything. I'll just keep driving. (laughs) Gene calls to her mom, Annie, uh, Mom, Annie's been hurt real bad. And... uh, Annie says, Jean, help me. And Jean cradles Annie in her arms and and suddenly finds herself inside Annie's mind, hearing Annie's thoughts, experiencing her emotions around her impenetrable darkness, facing her a glowing image of Annie whole and unharmed. And uh, she basically experiences Annie dying. So uh, already as a 10-year-old, she has experienced death. Yep. So she gets, she becomes more and more reclusive. She doesn't want to be a kid. She doesn't want to talk with people. She doesn't want to play with people. And part of the reason she becomes reclusive is because she can read people's minds, and that's like freaking her out. So mm-hmm. she she tries to stay away from people. So she sees a number of psychiatrists. None of them do much good until one guy comes along and says, "There is one other possibility. A colleague of mine just back from the Near East." Recovering from a terrible accident. A man named Charles Xavier. Wasn't it Lucifer that yeah. caused Charles Xavier? So he must have just gotten back from fighting Lucifer? Probably. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. So he, he the professor comes over, meets with Jean, finds out that she's a telepath and uh, she's got telekinetic powers. And it's at this point that he sets up psychic shields to help her cope with the power until she's mature enough to handle them, not like we were previously told him giving her a piece of her power, his power. 
Right. Maybe that's yeah. just, maybe though that's just what he told everybody because all of this other stuff would have been way too complicated to explain. Yeah, you know, the professor's a liar most of the time anyway. He, he wouldn't be, you know, hey everybody, I've been holding back Jean's powers all this time and I finally decided to let her use them now that she's ready. Although that does sound like something the professor would say. <laughs> it does. But maybe this one time he was like, I don't know. That That's kind of a dick move. So, yeah, everybody, I just gave her a little bit of my power. Just a little. And then Iceman's like, can I get some of your power? And No. <laughs> no. No. Two demerits for you, Bobby. Go sit down. So I see this as less of a retcon and more just in line with everything else we've read. Okay. <laughs> so, anyhow... uh. And then it goes on to she went to Professor Xavier's school. She met some friends who were Iceman, Angel, and Beast, and she, she fell, fell in love. love with Scott Summers, and then she died and became Phoenix. Hear me, X-Men. No longer am I the woman you knew. I am fire and life incarnate. Now and forever, I am Phoenix. Jeez. You, you just had to read that, didn't you? Well, I'm going to read it every time we see it because they just won't let us forget these words. I think Chris Claremont is really proud of that speech because <laughs> it gets written over and over and over again. He says it every night before he goes to <laughs> that's sleep. A, that's his little prayer when he goes to bed. <laughs> so she wakes up and she's wondering what happened to her and she realizes that her skin is blue. She's been dressed up in like a skimpy... Uh, top and kind of like a flowing bottom. She's pr- pr- pretty much naked. And she's breathing underwater. But how? But how and why? And why? Oh, Could man. Prince Namor be responsible for this kidnapping? It seems so out of character for Namor. What interest should he have in me? That sound, someone screaming. Oh, God, I know that voice. She's next door. It's Sarah, and she's been colored too. She's also been transformed. As an X-Men, I've had my, more than my share of extraordinary experiences. This is scary, but I can cope with it. Sarah can't. So first, she uh, hits her with a telepathic bolt in order to regain her mental equilibrium. Then she reaches into her mind to forge a rapport between the two of them to calm her uh, draw on her natural courage. Uh, but she finds that some force is inhibiting her from taking all of her concentration to focus her power properly. Uh, so it's weird. Whoever this is must know about her power. And after all that's done, Sarah's like, Woo! Thanks. I feel better. So that's why you're going to say that Sarah was able to recollect Jean's flashback. No. No. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll wait for it then. <laughs> wait for it. It would, <laughs> but she talks right here and says that there's something inhibiting her power. And I would say that if her power wasn't inhi- inhibited, then there would have been like a full psychic rapport. But that doesn't happen here. So I would say no at this point. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, some guards come in with guns and they're swimming. And, oh, this ties back into what I was going to say earlier. Uh, they've been uh, attacked and captured by fish men. So who were the people in the submarine? Uh, the the fishmen in a submarine. Why would the fishmen be in a submarine? <laughs> fishmen need submarines too, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. All right, fine. So it would make sense, like if they had an above water submarine that was filled with water. Now that would make sense, right? Because we take a submarine and we we put it underwater, but it has air in it. But this was underwater. It, it's an underwater submarine filled with water. <laughs> 
Seems unnecessary, but okay. It's really less of a submarine and more of an underwater spaceship. <laughs> All right, fine. So the guards come along and they're like, stop talking, females. You will obey and uh, obey all commands instantly. Now hurry. The master is impatient to meet his brides. Brides? That's Sarah says. Hey, Lou, sis. I'll get us out of this mess. You have my word. Although Jean doubts it. She's, her confidence is shaken, but she can't show that for Sarah. And this, this psionic inhibitor, whatever the hell it is, cripples her own effectiveness. Any way you look at it, their situation is pretty grim. Oh, that's another thing in this Marvel magazine here. There's a lot of hells and dams that get dropped. Right. This this was not originally published in the U.S. Oh, a question about Sarah's co- or outfit here. Is it literally like a necklace that goes around her neck and covers her, her breasts with no back strap or middle strap? Because that's what I it looks like. I was thinking that it's more like... Uh, Princess Leia, Return of the Jedi, it's kind of brazier. Yeah, but hers had like some clasps to make sure that they didn't fall off. Well, that's what I think those things in the front are, are clasps. Hmm. They just run along the backside. Okay. And they're, they're like straps that run over her shoulders. Oh, she definitely does have a back strap. You're right. But I don't know about, and that goes over the shoulders, but there's nothing in the cleavage that would hold these together. Yeah, hmm. that's true. Anyways, uh, so she gets, uh, they both get taken to uh, the main chamber or whatever, and it turns out that they are in the stronghold of Atuma, Scourge of the Seven Seas. Uh, Avengers uh, episode listeners might remember Atuma from a couple of backstories, if, if you actually listen to that portion of the podcast. I think Atuma also appears in the Atlantis Attacks annual series many years from now atuma's uh front frontispiece if you will his uh i don't know what you want to call it it looks like it reminds me of hordak from he-man <laughs> it does and so she he basically he invites the two ladies to eat dinner with them and that's when he he breaks down his plan which is to he, he's been in the shadow of Namor for too long, and now it's time for him to come to the forefront. So his power or his plan is to abduct mutant females, transform them using genetic virus, which he's already done, and then use them for breeding stock to produce a race of super beings that will bring the undersea and surface world to their collective knees. And these two ladies have the supreme honor of being the first subjects. Again, dark topics. Yeah, well, it's this is this is what you get for a black and white comic. <laughs> and so he looks over at Marvel Girl and says, uh, and he does refer to her as Marvel Girl, that he cautions her against using her powers because there's a psychic dampener around here and they'll destroy her brain if she tries to use them. And she might end up being a mindless vegetable, but then... Thought is not essential to bearing children. Good Lord. <laughs> well, that's when uh, Phoenix finally steps up and says the fuzziness she felt before was an after effect of the nerve gas he used on us. It's mostly gone now. So that, that cyanic damper, pretty, uh, she pretty much figured out where it is and what it can do. And your devices may have been adequate for Marvel Girl Atuma, but they don't matter a damn against Phoenix. 
scourge of the mighty fire and brimstone of the apocalypse and in life incarnate and stuff. Power! I am. That telekinetic force bolt should take you out of, to take the fight out of you, oh scourge. While the second eliminates all your precious psionic dampeners. And that's when the guards come out and they're like, call out the guard. And another guy's like, coward, we are four to their two. We alone can deal with them. Jean Grey blocks their bullets with a force shield and uh, manages to ricochet most of the bullets back into the attackers. She grabs Sarah. Um, Oh, we should also point out that at this point, Jean Grey is now no longer blue. Oh, right. She is surviving uh, on her phoenix powers. Right. She's transformed herself from a blue woman into normal flesh. Her her costume is no longer the bikini thing. It is the phoenix costume. And And Sarah says, Jean, that costume, that fiery bird, is that what mom and dad saw? Your skin is white. But if you're normal once more, the air breather, an air breather, how can you survive? I can survive anywhere, Sarah. Now quit babbling and swim for your life. Since when do you refer to people who breathe air as air breathers? <laughs> That's raises. <laughs> and so... Or speciesist, I guess. Atuma comes out and he's like, Why bother running? It'll be a wasted effort. I estimated Atuma. you were. That's a mistake I'll not repeat. Your This is also dark. You do the sharks in your head. I will mount on a lapse. In the center of my royal bedchamber, so that you may observe the consummation of my marriage to your darling sister. Whoa. Chris Claremont is a dirty old man. <laughs> Seriously, Chris Claremont is a perv. <laughs> but as he goes to cut uh, Jean's head off, she uses her telekinetic power to push the sword back, but even she says that she's barely able to do it because his strength is unbelievable. Fall, damn you, fall! No surface dweller, especially a female, will ever defeat Atuma in single combat. <laughs> Tuma's starting to sound like Yoda. Defeat <laughs> mm-hmm. you will not. Uh, but she will not condemn Sarah to a life of Atuma's slave. And so she pushes back with all of her power, forcing Atuma back. And he collapses into a pile of wood. His guards come out. Atuma is in peril, warriors. He must be rescued to his side at once. Death to those who would harm him. Yeah, Jean uses her telekinetic power to, like, drop the roof on them. And then Jean and Sarah swim away. Water's a thicker medium than air. Objects don't fall as fast. Atuma's army will have plenty of time to escape. And so will we. I almost killed him there. I wanted to. I still want to. And I think I know why. The phoenix is a creature of life, of emotion, of passion, but passion is inherently violent and impulsive. It's action without thought. It taps it. <laughs> God, I miss Jean. So long as my intellect restrains my emotions, I'll be all right. But if I ever lose control, hey, a Duma's voice. So setting up the future there a little bit, even though it's the past. Enjoy your triumphs, phoenix. I will not hunt you. I will not have to. Soon enough you will both return of your own free wills. Submit you will. (laughs) So they go swimming away. Looks like some dolphins uh, are helping them. They're like swimming with the dolphins. They think it's awesome. 
Jean pops out of the water and she's like, yeah, I'm outside of the water. But then Sarah does and she can't breathe outside of the water. Oh, no. Uh, Jean also communicates with the dolphins telepathically. No. <laughs> okay. Jean is Aquaman. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. The intelligent dolphins are glad to help showing the women the way to land. That's how they got back. Sarah was suffoc Sarah was suffocating. I'll use my TK ability to start her breathing again and revive her. That's what Atuma meant when we would come back. Sarah's a water breather now, and I'm an air breather. And even though you're thinking that, I'm going to end your sentence, says Sarah. Yes. And only a Tuma scientist can reverse the process. She goes on. I could live with that, being repeatedly raped every night by a Tuma. <laughs> oh, wait, no. She means that she could live underwater, swimming around with the dolphins, and just hanging out, exploring new parts of the ocean, if she was single. But she's not. Oh, my God. This is pretty <laughs> bad here. I'm sorry, like... As neat of an idea as that is, I just don't think that that's what I would be thinking that, uh, well, I don't know. It's weird. Weird writing. Gene says, uh, don't despair. I changed myself. Maybe I can do the same thing for you. Uh, you know, one thing I didn't point out earlier, which I, I, I wanted to, uh, is that when there was a full front on picture of Sarah in her costume, it looks like areola and nipples. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, okay. I, I I noted that as well, but didn't feel the need to, to say it. Out. Well, I did. <laughs> we'll get another one on the next page. But anyways, Jean decides that uh, she, if if Sarah's willing to take the risk, she can uh, bond with her and perhaps manipulate her body to take care of the blue skin and the water breathing. It will require a physical and psychic rapport as intimate as the one she shared with Annie Richardson. And that's the connection. Bingo. Whew. <laughs> it took a little bit, but we got there. <laughs> um, so Sarah says, sure. I am, even though Jean's like, it could kill you. But she says, I need to go. I must go. I have responsibilities, Jean, a husband and children. I love them. I can't abandon them. Send me home, please. So this, this is kind of neat. So Jean concentrates and uh, until she is familiar with every facet of Sarah's physical being. And once familiar with uh, Sarah's body, as familiar as she is with her own, she begins to modify a single cell. Uh, examines it, and then moves on to the next cell. So, like, uh, there are trillions of cells in the human body, and she slowly alters each and every one of them bit by bit, piece by piece, until she has fixed her sister. I like that concept. It's all right. It would make more sense if, like, she was intimately familiar with how Sarah used to be, because then she would have a blueprint of what she's supposed to be. Here's just a bunch of guesswork. I suppose you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's 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 for a comic book is very well explained. So it does. She's able to do it. Sarah doesn't die. Uh, they are underwater when they do it. And for some reason, they're really far underwater. <laughs> You'd think that they would have gone a little bit shallower. I can breathe again on myself. I never thought I could smell so sweet. Anything could smell so sweet. I have to admit, sis, your plan scared me silly, but it worked. Gene. Gene. And she has to dive back underwater. Damn, now that I'm back up to normal, I've lost my enhanced underwater senses. I'm virtually blind. Wait, the dolphins pushing Jean toward the surface. She's unconscious. 
And her pain, her pulse is so faint, I can hardly feel it. The effort she made nearly killed her. I'll try mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Come on, little sister, don't die on me, not after we've been through. Breathe, damn you, breathe! Oh, this is hot. (laughs) (laughs) That's the spirit. You're alive, considering how I feel. It's an honor. Why is Jean now wearing her, uh, her, her sea garb and not her phoenix outfit that's a really good question maybe the phoenix thing took so much out of her actually i have no idea because it it happens actually i don't know when it happens it doesn't you're right she should just be in her phoenix outfit maybe that's just to show that she was vulnerable okay anyway so she uh gene that is reaches scott with a telepathic sos but they've made a little fire which should keep us warm and besides she's too wasted to fly them home right now Saul Wright says, uh, Sarah, I prefer the solitude, and Jean knows what she's thinking. She's terrified about her kids, not simply about whether or not they're mutants, but what kind of mutants, and I, I just, I'm going to mind-wipe this entire day from her so that she doesn't have to worry about it. I'll speak to Professor Xavier about Sarah and the children. He'll find a way to determine their mutant or their genetic status. And uh, we cut back to the grave site where... Sarah reveals that the psionic block on her memories lasted till your death, and then it dissolved, and she wishes that Jean hadn't done that. She, she believes she could have handled the strain, or did you want, or, or what, were you in fact sparing yourself, Jean, and me the pain of confirming my fears? You never got the chance to tell Xavier, did you? Two years have passed, and it's very nearly too late, and I, I have to face him and reality. Funny, I don't feel quite so apprehensive anymore. If my children are mutants, they turn out to be a fraction of the person you were. I'll be very, very proud. I love you, Jean. I miss you, wherever you are. I pray you're at peace. I hope you're happy. I think that so long as someone remembers you with love, you'll always be part of our lives, that you'll never truly die. When she says she has to face him alone, is she talking about the professor? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. There you go. Amazing, bizarre. She she has to face to to figure out if her kids are mutants. I guess she is going to go to the professor. I don't know if that ever happens or not. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. So there you go. Um, we got a little bit of a uh, mail. The graves around Jean are shady, Higgins, and Katie Machio. Hmm. Is that? Somebody who's related to Ralph Macchio, and is it Higgins from Magnum P.I.? Yes and yes. Perfect. Uh, we got some mail. We got uh, we got a uh, a new iTunes review. We'll start there. Uh, this is from DJ three five six nine DF six. I bet you there's a better way to pronounce that or not. <laughs> Why don't we just go with DJ? <laughs> or it's the most difficult DJ name to pronounce. Yo, 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 I'm DJ3569DF6, y'all. This one goes out to you guys. (laughs) That wouldn't be too bad, actually. Uh, And this person goes on to say, I found this by chance, and it's awesome. I have been marathoning episodes for about a week now, and it hasn't gotten old. It's very funny, and you don't have to already be an X-Men fan to enjoy it. Woo-hoo! All right. Yes. We also got a letter from Clarissa Wilcox who apparently started listening about a week ago, a week and a half ago, and finished 40 episodes starting from the beginning. Uh, she realizes, uh, or, or he, actually Adam and I had a debate on this. 
do we think Cla- well, uh, Clarissa? I mean, I, if if it, I apologize, Clarissa, if you were a dude, I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's the, it's the 21st century, man. Any name can be anything. Like I think there's boys these days uh, whose names are Ella, and I think it just has an H on the end, and that denotes masculinity. At any rate. This doesn't have an H on the end of it. Well, no. <laughs> Nothing about Clarissa denotes masculinity. I'm just this is this is a this is a girl. But if it was an I instead of an E, if it was Clarissa, then I would be totally like, "Yup, it's a girl." But the E is like, I don't know, like it, it could go either way. No. <laughs> All right. Anyways, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But no. <laughs> Clarissa goes on to say uh, that Clarissa is 21 years old, a student that's just starting to really get into comic books, came across our show and has been enjoying the hell out of it. Uh, and the first episode that was listened to was Dark Phoenix episodes, picked at random, and after the beautifully awful Jean Grey voice left laughing uncontrollably, Clarissa was hooked. Uh, Clarissa works at an auto repair shop and listens to us five uh, to six hours a day. Good lord. Five to six episodes a day. Well, they're, well they're... Which, which roughly translates to five or six hours a day. Yeah. So she she works, uh, or they, <laughs> Clarissa works at an auto repair shop, and uh, she just has her headphones on and listens to us while she works on cars. Yeah, well, that was what I would totally do. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, it's still enjoying the show. So at, at five episodes per day... I mean, that's 25 episodes per week. Um, So she might be caught up by now. Exactly. Like you might be hearing this uh, as we record it. Well, no. (laughs) Well, not as we record it, but like it wouldn't be like months out. That's what I'm trying to get Don't be stupid, Jeremy. (laughs) Try not to be. So I'm picturing a uh, a badass 21-year-old car working on girl and i don't know why but that just strikes me as super cool so clarissa i hope you're a girl because <laughs> i don't know why but i think that's cool there you go um and we got some facebook too didn't we yes we got a, a uh, another letter from uh james howlett uh otherwise known as wolverine who wanted to say that uh, uh, just some specific stuff. He he really liked the uh, the Cyclops voice at the uh, from Giant Size X Men at the thirty six twenty one mark, very specifically where Cyclops starts talking like he's from the hood. I went back and listened to that. It is it is kind of funny. He has literally replayed those lines and given to nausea and still chuckle every time. And the second best moment as far as humor is concerned is Adam taking talking about the backup story regarding Warpath's funeral in classic X-Men, which I did not listen to him because I have no idea what episode that's from. Well, it would be, it would be from like the, like two issues after giant sized. Probably, but <laughs> you know, whatever we appreciate, we appreciate the, uh, we appreciate being liked, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always something to be appreciative of. And uh, one day, James Howlett, we're actually going to like fully watch this cool Chris Claremont video you sent us and, and actually talk about it. Is that the but, Dark Wolverine thing? Yeah, it's like 30 minutes long, and I haven't watched it yet. So when, when we, we've, we've both watched it, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Because it seems like... 
some of it might be interesting. I started watching it and I was like, okay, some of this I know, some of this I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it it seemed definitely worthwhile watching. And I I had thought we had lost the link to that, so maybe we could just go the extra mile and put it up on our page. But yeah, we should we should. No, listen. It's, it's right, right. It's right on the Facebook page. Oh, okay. Well, we should listen to that and then maybe comment on it or something. I don't know. Because yeah, I started listening to it and I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. But then I ran out of time. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, if you'd like to... Is there anything else? Uh, I don't believe so, no. All right, so if you'd like to get a hold of us and join in on the fun, you can do so by visiting us at www.xmenpodcast.com. There all of the episodes are. You can comment on each one if you would like, or you can just get access to them and other content, or you can go out to the iTunes. Uh, You can go out to iTunes. You can type in Danger Room within the iTunes store. We come right up. You find us. You could... Subscribe, download, listen, leave a five-star review, whichever you prefer. You can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Danger Room Podcast. You can like us there. I think we're up to like 164, 165 likes, which is neat. And you could follow us on Twitter at Danger Room Go. Or finally, you can email us at DangerRoom at RedCatProductions.com. Or I guess you could actually call us. Uh, 501 get x-men yo 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 and that brings so, us uh, oh yes what happened to uh what happened to dazzler in july of 1981 well adam after her big bout with dr doom she finds herself in a hospital bed frightened by all of the recent adventures including the enchantress dr doom nightmare her dad and she's <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, left a big impact on her, and all she wants to do is sing, but nobody will let her because she keeps having to fight these villains, and her dad won't give her her approval. And she wakes up in a hospital bed where Johnny Storm is there, and she's like, Hey, cutie, I brought you here. I'm the torch. And the nurse is like, Hmm, this girl is obviously strung out on drugs. <laughs> doctor is like, no, she's just got severe trauma. And even Johnny Storm is there to be like, no, she went toe-to-toe with Dr. Doom and I brought her here. And he tries to make her a flaming bouquet of roses, but she's like, put that fire out. She's all kind of out of it and stuff. And so she like kind of want to get kind of wants to get back to business because she's thinking to herself, "Oh my God, I have no job. I just uh, ditched that UN show, which was supposed to pay all my bills. I got to get out of here." But the nurse, this crazy nurse person, is like, "Get into the wheelchair and take off that ridiculous makeup." And she wheels her to a room. And even Johnny Storm is like, "Wow, that woman is weird. She's like Doc Doom." But she's got a friendly disposition. Oh, I think he's being sarcastic because she's being very curt and terse and stuff. So anyways, uh, the doctor is like talking to Johnny and be like, okay, well, we'll take care of her. And Johnny Storm turns into the human torch. The doctor's like, oh, my God, you're on fire. And Johnny Storm's like, I'm the torch. And he flies off. So the nurse is still equally creepy to Dazzler, who's, she's like, you got to take that makeup off. You got to be quiet. There's a woman sleeping next to you and I'm going to go now. Well, so Dazzler finds that the woman next to her has a son named Joey. And so the woman is like, I just want to tell her I'm sorry and I still love Joey. And Dazzler's like, oh, geez, I got to deal with this now. 
Meanwhile, there's this dude named the Blue Shield, and he's cracking up uh, gangster stuff all over town. Like, he really does not like organized crime. So he's busting up gambling games and money laundering rings, and he's punching people, and he's looking for, like, the big boss or something like that. And so, meanwhile, uh, Dazzler is getting uh, discharged from the hospital and kind of strikes up a little bit of a relationship with the doctor. The doctor's like, would you like to go out for a sandwich? And she's like, no, not right now. What's up with that lady that's sleeping next to me in my uh, room? And so he gives her this whole story about how a car came out of nowhere and, and killed her husband in front of her child. And that man was the organized crime mafia boss known as Bo Borigan. And there's a connection there somewhere. And Dazzler's all like, oh, I really wish I could have gone out for the sandwich with him, but I got to get to work and I got to figure out if I still have a singing career. So she goes back to Harry Osgood and is like, I'm sorry for leaving the UN show. And he's like, what are you talking about? Did you see the newspaper? And it says, singer stars and un heist so now she's got uh she's got marketing cred she's booked and and uh this whole time she's been thinking about how she's going to pay her bills and get groceries and pay the doctors and all that sort of stuff and harry osgood's like here's a check and the check covers the medical bills and it covers her food apparently doesn't cover her rent so she's still kind of in the rears on that So a few days later, she gets a she gets a band and she's playing and rehearsing and they're singing lots of songs and stuff. But she's still thinking about her daddy and how her dad doesn't support her. And anyways, so she is still thinking about this woman and this Bo Berrigan and all the stuff that she heard in the hospital. So she calls Beast and Beast is like, oh, hey, Dazzler, sure, I can go snooping through the computers and find you all the information you need. So she gets all the information, she finds out who this guy is, the Joey guy, and she goes to try to visit him, but he turns out that he is the, uh, he's actually the right-hand man of Bo Berrigan. Isn't that weird? Because Bo Berrigan is the guy that killed his his father. And so she tries to ask him, like, hey, I, I, I gotta talk to you, and he's like, hey, I'm too busy for for your kind besides i don't hire the bimbos <clears throat> once again is this what got you all started up on bimbos yeah it's like two bimbos in one week that's just too much i don't hire the bimbos for a model modeling agency and she's like bimbo model but i'm not he thought i was a cheap piece of fluff why that he hasn't seen the last of me so he's like cruising she's cruising around like trying to figure out uh because she still wants to pass this message on to joey but joey's kind of a jerk we found out and meanwhile, there's this piece of equipment that was stolen that she stumbles upon that uh, apparently is stolen by Bo Berrigan. And all of these mafia guys come and find Dazzler and they're like, get out of here, you frail. And they punch her and they knock her down. And so she... There you go. They could say frail. Frail. You don't refer to a guy as a frail. Again, that's a that's a gender-based but, well, insult. Wolverine says it, so it can't be that bad. Yeah, well, I don't like it when Wolverine says it either. You frail. Just a negative. <laughs> Futzer's much better than frail. <laughs> so Dazzler whips out her radio, and everyone's like, A radio? This broad's crazy. Are you going to rock and roll us to death? And apparently, what comes on the radio is Devo's Whip It. And boy, howdy, <laughs> does she whip it. 
Yay. <clears throat> she pulls up a dazzle blast and she knocks them over there. There are thugs that are upside down. They got blasted so hard by her dazzle blast. She jumps behind some boxes. She puts on her roller skates and she's skating around. And meanwhile, Joey, the right-hand man of Bo Berrigan, he's behind another building. And he's like, what's up with that girl? And he pulls off his clothes Superman style to reveal that he is the blue shield. And he comes in and he's like, look out, lady, I'm going to get those punks. And he starts beating up the thugs. And Dazzler is actually very useless here. She's just doing a lot of dodging of the blue shield. While blue shield's like, get out of here, you skirt. See, that's another... <laughs> gender-based insult that is used in x-men or uh, comics a lot bimbo frail skirt anyways you know what you know what isn't a gender-based uh uh like slang but you know sounds like it is but became somehow has like not become what like girl g-u-r-l girl g-u-r-l no yeah, that's G-U-R-L. like isn't that like hasn't the hasn't that been co-opted as like girl power well, that's like, uh, it, it can mean a, a boy or a girl at this point. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, I don't know. You're not, maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not hip with the kids and I'm r- totally raw off base on this, but I think that's what the scare, the, the squares say these days. Maybe. Yeah. You can, you can use girl for boy or girl. It's cool. Everybody's doing <laughs> it. So Dazzler finally gets in on the action and she's, she's dazzle blasting thugs. And one of the thugs, dazzle I think it's blasting. I like it. Yeah. I think that's what she refers to it as as well. Uh, and then Bo Berrigan, he's he's actually here. He's on site, and he jumps into this stolen piece of military equipment, and he's driving it around. He's trying to shoot at uh, Blue Shield and Dazzler, but he keeps missing. And finally, uh, he, he actually does connect with Blue Shield, who goes falling. He's kind of unconscious. And it's at this point that Dazzler springs into action. She makes a big Dazzle blast, which blinds Bo Berrigan, and she's very tired out, and she's like, oh my god, I'm never going to make it. But then she pulls that last bit of strength, and she starts running down a pier, and apparently there's limited visibility in this piece of machinery, because when they get to the end of the pier, she dodges out of the way, and the piece of machinery goes driving into the water with Bo Berrigan. And that's when Blue Shield, whose sole purpose this whole comic book, because he's Joey, by the way, has been to infiltrate the mob, get close to Bo Bear again, so that at some point he can kill her. But at some point he found some military equipment that gave him this Blue Shield power. So I don't know why he didn't just go kill him when at some other time but anyways when he sees bo Berrigan go flying off the side of the pier he's like no he was like a father to me and i'm supposed to take him down these emotions are so mixed up and twisted so he jumps into the water and he rips apart the tin can machine and he pulls bo Berrigan out and he's like i'm gonna turn him over to the authorities even though i wanted to kill her i or him i think i've learned a lesson and that's when he's like what have you been doing here this whole time he says to dazzler and dazzler's like look They've been looking for this guy named Joseph Cartelli, Bo's number one man, to tell him about his mother in the hospital. This guy's like, oh, and what would you say to this man if he was here? And she's all like, well, if he was here, I would say that she said to tell Joey that she loves him. And that's when Blue Shield is like, what? And he goes to the hospital, and he's got like a hat on and an overcoat, but he's still got his Blue Shield costume on, which is kind of stupid. But he's like... Uh, hey, to his mom, we once knew each other. And she's like, you're familiar. You're the Blue Shield. I've read about you. You hunt gangsters like like Joey. Because she knows that Joey became a monster. She, she doesn't understand why 
he became the right-hand man of the man who killed his father. And so Blue Shield goes on and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I have witnessed a murder just like the murder your son witnessed. And so he never actually says that he's her son, but she figures it out and says we can start over. And that's when Dazzler shows up for a visit. And she's like, oops, I'm a little early. I guess I can kind of be out of here because this is a private moment. And she runs into the doctor and the doctor's like, hey, you ready for that sandwich? And she's like, I'm totally ready for that sandwich. Let's go. And the nurse pops out and she's like, mm, this will not do at all. Allison seems like a nice girl, but she's all wrong for the doctor. I may have to take matters into my own hands. Woo. Next issue. <laughs> Next issue. Dazzler versus the Hulk. <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. <laughs> so very weird, weird issue of Dazzler. I I was I was lost. <laughs> well, would you like me to clarify anything for you? No, because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Anything X Men related was that Beast used the Avengers computers to give privately identifiable information to Dazzler for him to, for her to track down Joey. That's it. Speaking of Beast, uh, Avengers 209 is a very Beast-centric issue in which it turns out that Beast and Vera have reconnected. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And they're in love. Oh, my God. They've, they've uh, restarted their relationship up, and he brings her to the mansion, and he has her meet all the other Avengers, and he's bouncing around like Tom Cruise on Oprah. He's so happy. <sighs> And uh, Jarvis brings them some. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jarvis brings uh, some her some tea, and she drinks the tea, and she dies because Jarvis is a scroll who just poisoned her. And Beast is like, "Why did you do that? I was in love with her." And the scroll, the scroll who is never named in this issue, says, "I'm looking for a cosmic stone that can bring the bed the dead back to life." And I want the Avengers to do it for me. And I figured, hey, since you're really in love with this girl, I'm going to use her. Sure. It's generally the way that why goes. Why not use Scarlet Witch or, I don't know, you know, maybe one of the Avengers. The Avengers are like, no way, man. And they start to beat up on the scroll. But Beast starts to cry and says, no, we'll do it. So the Avengers go to the Fantastic Four. And with Reed Richards' help, they travel back to the year 1348 where a boy has half of the stone, but uh, it only cre being only half of the stone, it creates zombies that are just like moving bodies with no souls. Marvel zombies? So, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they don't eat brains, though. Oh, okay. They're just walking around doing zombie-like things. Uh, Beast steals it from the boy leaving the boy crying because the boy was like, everybody's treating me like a god now that I have this thing. I'm super cool. And then Beast just grabs it and they leave. And the boy is the boy cries. Aww. So they jet forward to 1945, and the other half of the stone turns out to be in a concentration camp. Uh, a Dachau, is that how, how it's pronounced? Dachau. Dachau. And... Uh, in a very sad scene, a Jewish uh, man has brought his family back to life, but as this is only half again, the, so, the stone again, uh, this is just their souls. They can't actually move their bodies, and they are pleading with him to let them die. 
he's like, no, they, uh, God must have brought us this stone for a reason so that we could live together after all the torment we've been through. And um, Beast goes up to the man and, and pleads with him in German to give him this the stone half and let his family rest. And then they return to uh, and and the and the guy does and he lets his family die. It's 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 very this is a very dark kind of sad issue. Um, they return to 1981 and the scroll. They go to the scroll spaceship and the scroll says only Beast can come over. And so Beast comes over and even then the scroll won't let him get to where he is and wants him just to just send the stone over and he promises. He will revive Vera, who is in some sort of uh, Bacta tank. And uh, B says, even though he's going to lose Vera, he can't give this much power to the scroll. After thinking about how it ruined the boy's life and the and the the Jewish guy's life, he he's going to let Vera go because no one should be allowed to have this much power. So he destroys the stone with his bare hands. Whoa. And uh, that's when the Fanta- the Avengers beat the crap out of the scroll. But they go back to the Fantastic Four, and it turns out that the poison was slow acting, and Mr. Fantastic has placed Vera into suspended animation, and one day he might able to cure her. <sighs> and the last panel is Beast sitting alone on a rooftop, thinking there's hope wow i i never knew that there was that level of depth of vera's story i don't know i'm 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 very curious as to whether or not she comes back what she does oh oh, that's right we know she does (laughs) i mean not not in canon we know but we know yeah we know yeah (laughs) well i wonder i wonder how she gets out of suspended animation yeah well i Mr. Fantastic will figure something out. I guess so. Uh, I also read the uh, bullpen bulletins for this month uh, that was in Avengers because there was a lot of interesting information. Um, Jim Shooter writes, uh, he talks about Frank Miller and how with only a couple of scripts of Daredevil to his credit, he's being compared to the likes of Chris Claremont. (laughs) And uh, Louise Jones has just been welcomed to the X-Men and also she just got married to Walt Simonson. Oh. An artist whose achievements would take pages to list and he's not going to do that. So Louise is now Louise Simonson. So that means that Louise Jones and Louise Simonson are the same person. I know. Crazy. We speculated, but now we have confirmation. Wow. Larry Hama is mentioned here. Artist, writer, actor, musician, editor, and expert on just about everything. Larry is a martial arts expert, a foreign culture expert, a firearms and explosive ordinance expert, and he is writing, he's currently writing Crazy for Marvel, <laughs> a book called Crazy. Was that like yeah. their Mad Magazine take on it? It must be. It, so- it sounds great. This month. This month's issue of, uh, oh no, that's... This month's issue of Man-Thing 11 features the death of Chris Claremont. Whoa. Um, congratulations. Other wedding congratulations include John Byrne getting married to Andrea Braun, who uh, he met at the Chicago Comic-Con. Ooh. And speaking of John Byrne, lots of folks were puzzled when they heard that John had left the X-Men. Why? 
Well, after years of drawing X-Folks, John was just plain tired of multiple mutants, and frankly, having developed his storytelling skills to awesome heights, John felt the need to have more creative control over the characters he was right working on, meaning that he wanted to write as well as draw a series. All that added up to moving over to the Fantastic Four. Chris Claremont, X-Men writer for six glorious years now, will be joined by Dave Cockrum, who started the new X-Men on the road to success way back when, and Joe Rubenstein, who's an outstanding anchor, looks uh, looks like everything worked out fine. I did actually read that in, in the X-Men bullpen this week. Or, yeah, this week. That's the official uh, PR word. <laughs> <laughs> well. And, uh, that's pretty much it. The rest of it is not very particularly interesting. Cool. Some some people had some babies. Yeah. All right, then. Anything else? That's that's all I got. I was surprised to see the return of Vera, so that was that was that was interesting. Uh keep listening everybody for more shocks, awes, and surprises of characters you thought were long gone. And perhaps some more birth announcements from 1981. <laughs> we, we got a we got a flashback scene of the uh, the issue of uh, Hulk that Vera and the Mimic were in. Oh yeah, it was the Mimic, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. Good times. All right, well then, uh, everybody. Until next time, the danger room is closed. This is a nine minute beat poem. <laughs> It's called Storm. In a North London top floor flat, all white walls, white carpet, white cat, rice paper partitions, modern art and ambition. The host's a physician, bright bloke, has his own practice, his girlfriend's an actress, an old mate of ours from home. And they're always great fun, so to dinner we've come. The fifth guest is an unknown. The hosts have just thrown us together for a favour because this girl's just arrived from Australia and she's moved to North London and she's a sister of someone or has some connection. As we make introductions, I'm struck by her beauty. She's irrefutably fair with dark eyes and dark hair. But as she sits, I admit I'm a little bit wary because I notice the tip of the wing of a fairy tattooed on that popular area just above the derriere. And when she says, I'm Sagittarian... I confess, a pigeonhole starts to form and is immediately filled with pigeon when she says her name is Storm. Conversation is initially bright and light-hearted, but it's not long before Storm gets started. You can't know anything. Knowledge is merely opinion. She opines over her Cabernet Sauvignon vis-a-vis some unhippily empirical comment made by...